Welcome to the Law of Startups Podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I'm Joe Wallen. Thank you for being with us today. Today, we're lucky to have with us in the studio, Mr. Rand Fishkin. Rand, welcome to the show. Joe, Mike, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, for sure. So, Rand, you, uh, you, I know a lot of people in the community who just uh, are totally stoked to see you do things because you're such a creative person. And so you've got this book out, which is pretty awesome. I've been reading it, Lost and Founder. And that was just recently released, right? Yeah, that's right. It's uh, about 40 days old now. <laughs> right. So that's pretty, it's a, it's a, well, it's really well done. How long did it take you to write it? Uh, this was about a year to write the rough draft and then another year of editing and, you know, getting the cover and getting printed and all those kinds of things. So yeah, it's a long, old school publishing is a long process. Right. But I guess the benefits of it, we've had some people on the show self-published and we've had some people on the show who actually turned like Kickstarter campaigns into publishing contracts. Yeah. So we talked to a bunch of people who publish things in different ways. It must have been nice though, to have professionals <laughs> to help you. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the frustration of the traditional publishing process is made up for by the fact that you get to experience the highest quality professionals in that world, right? So the, the you know, my editor, Nikki Papadopoulos and the, you know, marketing team there and the um, print team, the design team, all extraordinary people, right? Clearly, you know, they've published books by presidents and, and you know, CEOs who've made billions of dollars. And you can tell. You can tell. Yeah. No, it's a great book. And, and so I'd really encourage anyone in the audience to read it. It's called Lost and Founder. And, uh, yeah, I'm really, I'm really enjoying it. I've, and I've done sort of the thing you're not supposed to do, I've sort of skipped around. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, there's some really interesting and fun stories in here. And I suppose I, one of the things that, that struck me as really curious when I was reading it was you were talking about the early days of getting started in in what ultimately became Moz and sort of like uh, how you were kind of fishing around and trying to find the right approach to the market and you sort of yeah. stumbled upon this um I mean it seemed this the story seems to be you sort of stumbled upon this SEO thing it wasn't exactly yeah, the focus right. yeah so basically we were you know we were a web design and marketing company over in Bellevue and this was my mom and I, right? The most unlikely startup pairing possible, mom and son combination. Uh, we basically couldn't pay our bills. We were, you know, behind on our debt payments, um, got into a lot of problems with that, couldn't pay our subcontractors. And so I had to learn SEO because that was one of the things we were offering our clients. We were farming it out, you know, to someone else. <clears throat> and... It was hard. It was a pain in the butt to learn at the time. It was a very secretive f field at the time. And I essentially tried to learn the practice and then share it on this blog, SEO Moz. And over time, that gained attention. You know, it was a slow start, probably a year and a half, two years before anyone was really reading this blog. But once it took off, we started getting a lot of consulting contracts specifically for SEO. I got invited to speak at events. And then we had a set of tools that we built internally for our own use. And I wanted to share that set of tools and our programmer, Matt, um, said, no, you know what, uh, we, we won't be able to handle the traffic. So I was like, okay, Matt, well, what if we put it behind a PayPal paywall? He's like, all right, I'll set up a little thing. <laughs> and then six months after we launched that, the software subscription was doing more revenue than the consulting business. And we went, whoa, I think we're onto something. Right. And that's when uh, Michelle Goldberg from Ignition Partners reached out, and Kelly Smith from Curious Office reached out. And so we raised a round of funding um, and they made me CEO. And for the next seven years, you know, we had sort of 
100% year over year growth, went to $30 million in revenue. Um, yeah. And then I, I stepped down as CEO a couple of years later, wrote this, wrote this book. And then a couple of years after that, uh, in fact, just this February left Moz and started this new company, Spark Toro. Yeah. So crazy, crazy, weird adventure. Um, <laughs> definitely an unintentional accidental entrepreneur, you know, building this, uh, building this company when, when all I sort, sort of really wanted to do was, uh, try and find a way to pay off our web design debts. Right. Yeah, I love Michael. Why can't I've heard that story before? Sort of the, the you discover something and it wasn't what you expected to discover. Yeah, and then it leads you in a, a, a good a good direction. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, Lost and Founder talks about how a lot of this stuff did lead us in a good direction, but also also a difficult direction. You know, I think there's a lot of mythology that people have around tech startups. And and Joe and Mike, I know you guys have seen all the ugly ins and outs, right? And you've had your clients tell you, hey, I'm I'm not who you think I am. I don't have, you know, the money that you think I have. I, this company is not exactly where you think it is, right? And and there's sort of a lot of pressure to, I think, present yourself, less so in Seattle, but but more so in Silicon Valley, present yourself as always, I'm always crushing it. We're killing it, you know. Um, I've never crushed or killed anything. <laughs> <laughs> not not intentionally anyway as a startup founder and i think that there that, that pressure comes from this idea that growth is the most important thing right that that what matters the most is growing and in fact i'm not sure that's totally healthy or right i think that a lot of startups they launch too soon um they try and grow too fast they get their expenses too big too quickly they think that they're supposed to take over the world when in fact taking over one city would be just fine. Um, they try and expand to multiple products when focusing on one would probably have a lot more success for them. Uh, and they they have this, you know, need, I think that comes from the culture of institutional capital's need to, you know, be a billion dollar startup or die trying. Um, and, and I don't think that is the right way to go for most companies. And I think this is why you see, you know, if, if we measure success in the startup world as being returns capital to its investors in the quantity that they need, 95% of startups are failures, right? And so um, I, I don't like that success rate. Those odds suck. You you have better odds as a restaurant, literally. Um, so I- Yeah, we've, you know, we've talked about that before. Those odds work great for the venture capitalists they because do. they get to spread their bets around. But for the entrepreneurs, we get to pick one thing to do for a bunch of years and- um, yeah, I mean, so if you're going to dedicate five to ten years of your life to something, you probably don't want a ninety-five percent chance against you, right? I mean, it's it's uh, that doesn't work if if you're having to pick one one horse to ride. That is that is exactly right, exactly right, and and yet I think that despite so many people knowing that um, sort of intellectually, we have not internalized it as a culture. We have not internalized it, and so therefore venture capital is still venture backing is still held up as the pinnacle, the apex of entrepreneurship in the tech field. Um, there's so many people who, you know, I was at an event last night and you know, the, the organizer announces, Oh, and, and here's this person and they've just closed their convertible note, you know, for a million dollars, everyone claps in the room. And I kind of go, man, should we be clapping <laughs> or should we be like, Oh dude, I'm so sorry. Right. Cause it, that is the road that you're going down is so fraught with danger, right? Your odds of success of, of doing potentially what you want to do with this company of surviving for another five years with this company just went from 50% to 
well, maybe more like 10 or 15, but still, I, yeah, I, I have a tough time clapping. Right. So it's the expectation. You think the, uh, it's just a sort of a mismatch of expectations, maybe perhaps because the, well, it, it takes it. Have something else in mind. Yeah. Well, it also takes a bunch of, of successful outcomes off the table. Yes. Right. Like think, think there's, there's a bunch of possible, you know, it, when you start a venture, you've got, let's say there's 10 possible things that could happen. You could become massive and take over the world. You could fail. You could be a bunch of spots in the middle. Once you take that venture funding, you know, a bunch of things that would otherwise be considered wins are no longer wins. Um, that's, that's exactly right? right. So Moz, Moz perfectly illustrates this, right? So we grew you know, from basically uh, zero to $50 million in revenue in uh, 11 years um, on the software side, right? And that sounds pretty good, right? Uh, Moz will kick off, you know, 10% of its revenue in profit. Uh, it's growing at about 11% year over year. You know, I think, right, if, if the three of us owned that business, we'd be feeling really good. We'd be like, hey, we're all taking home a couple million dollars this year. Uh, in addition to whatever salaries we pay ourselves and we've got this nice growing thing and, you know, it's doing really nicely and we employ a bunch of people and we have 30,000 happy customers. Awesome. Right. We're psyched. But if you're venture backed, we're taking home our salary, which is probably under market, right. For what we would be making at a big company that's similar. Uh, and we are not getting to share in any profits or distributions. Uh, and we have to hope that someone will eventually buy this company, which in the venture world would be called struggling, right? Because 10, 10, 11% growth and, you know, 10% profit margins are not interesting to investors. Uh, I just went through a process where I was actually, so I, I left Moz, I tried to sell some of my stock, right? And I talked to literally 30, 40 buyers of, you know, private stock, um, Zero interest. That's Not insane. a single That's person insane. was interested in buy, buying Moz stock, right? They're like, ah, you're kind of a stuck in the middle company. We don't know about this. I don't think so. Um, so, so, yeah. Odd. So odd. So strange. Yeah, very, um, very, very odd situation. And I think that many founders assume, hey, look, if I get to 50 million in revenue, right. we're, we, we got it, right? Like we're doing all right. But, um, but that's not necessarily the case. So... I just want to, I want us as a field to explore more options. And in fact, you know, for, for those of you who don't know, just a full disclosure, uh, Joe was my attorney uh, for SparkToro, is my attorney for SparkToro. Um, and uh, we just completed a round of funding that's, that's super unusual. And uh, Mike, I, I'm not sure if um, Joe filled you in on those details. Yeah. yeah, no, I don't. I tell me, tell me about the new project. I'm, I'm, uh, I know as much as as the average person, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, so, I, 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 which is, yeah. Yeah. So, so give, I mean, give was, me the background. Yeah, it was cool. So, uh, my co-founder Casey and I, you know, we both have sort of this, I don't know what you want to call it, the venture hangover, right? Like, you know, we drank too much the last decade, and and now we're a little, uh, little out of it, and so we're ready, ready for some orange juice uh, and coffee the next morning. And so, our orange juice and coffee was getting together with Joe and saying like, Hey man, could we structure? Whoa. That was, that was the exciting announcement. <laughs> um, could we structure something that would let us, sorry, no, no problem. Well, good. good. Yes, please go ahead. Yeah. Uh, could we structure something that would let us build a business that has more of those Mike to your, um, reference points in the middle? potential outcomes, right? So if we sell for a billion dollars, awesome. 
right? Our investors are, of course, going to be thrilled. But what if we uh, grow slowly over the years and profitably over the years and decide to pay dividends? Could we do that? Um, what if we, you know, sell for a smaller amount? What if we return? What if we return our capital very, very quickly, but it's not in an amount that would make a huge dent in a big institutional portfolio, right? So, you know, maybe we launch this thing, it looks exciting, and someone's like, hey, we'll give you four or five million dollars for that uh, right off the bat. And we want to say yes to that. An institutional investor, they're like, well, great, you made us four times our money, five times our money real quick, but it doesn't move the needle on a, you know, $700 million fund or something. Um, and so we went out to uh, literally just uh, mostly angel investors, a lot of folks who are first time investors, uh, who haven't invested previously, many of them are going to be our customers, actually, and said, hey, we have this really unique structure um, where you put in, we put it, we took 1.3 million, uh, each of the 35, I think it's 35 or 36 folks who put money in, uh, they get their money back first before Casey and I can sort of increase our salaries or pay ourselves anything. And then after that, everyone shares in the profit dividends from the company if we choose to pay those out. Or in any given year, we can choose not to pay dividends, which means Casey and I don't get anything additional, or nor do our investors, and we reinvest that money in growth. Um, and then there's, you know, there's a bunch of other mechanisms in there to sort of make sure that it's fair and equitable for everyone. But I, I, I kind of love this structure. You know, I think that, um, and Joe, I think you were you were genius in sort of engineering a bunch of things in there that make it uh, very, very fair to investors and very fair to founders and really flexible. Yeah, I think it's a great structure. And you you did a really nice thing when you open source all the documents. And uh, but uh, and I appreciate the comments. But I mean, obviously, you had great feedback from other folks, too. And yeah, the group yeah. of advisors who helped you structure this thing. So it made a lot of sense. And I, I think it is frustrating because you're right. Like one of the frustrations for me is uh, and I've seen this happen. You know, like what I had a company one time, it just a great it was a great management team, you know, they been built, you know, over years, the company is just doing great. It's finally kind of hit its stride. Investors get tired. Yeah. Investors say, you know what, we're tired. We're going to pass this along to somebody else. Somebody else. We're going to exit this business. And so then they, they cheer over the business and the management team gets broken up and the whole thing is a sort of a, it's a shame in some ways that things like this happen when you've got a great team together, running a great business. And then it's just kind of an odd result, really. If you think about it. Like, what are we trying to do here? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, so, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mike. Is the idea the idea of the of this new structure? I guess it's from what I'm hearing. This is the first time I'm hearing about it, but it sounds like the idea is put together a package for an investor who's maybe willing to take a bet that doesn't. It, they're not shooting for a 10x return. Uh, they're shooting for something smaller, but with less risk for them. So, 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 like you know, you create a vehicle for them that is, you know, you'd think that would still be plenty attractive if you said, okay, you may not get a 10x return, but you might be likely to get a 5x return, but it's it's twice as likely to happen. You know, so are you interested and find a different kind of investor? Uh, so was I that, think was that kind of how it looks? Sort of. The only the only caveat I'd have to that is, I believe that by increasing the odds of a three x, four x, five x return, you actually also increase the odds of a ten x return or a hundred x return. Because I think one of the things that kills startups so often is the find growth at all costs as fast as possible or die trying. And I believe that a, a business like SparkToro, it could be that, you know, in the in the next few years, it, you know, returns a little bit of capital. But I think it could also be that if we are patient and we grow profitably, we can be, you know, 37 signals, right? We can be Atlassian, we can be 
um, you know, a, an absolutely big, huge company that that does a hundred million dollars plus in revenue a year, um, but that does so with more patience, right, and with more ability to uh, take its time and to not have the same risk of you know everything from fast hiring and fast layoffs to customer churn to you know building wrong product. Uh, one of the you know one of the things that Casey and I are doing is we, we raise this one point three million dollars, which is a lot for two guys who literally won't have an office, um, aren't planning on hiring anyone for the next at least year. Uh, we are just we just want to validate this market first, and we want to have a lot of runway to make mistakes and then to go, you know, figure out that this is a whether this is a great product and how big the space can be, uh, and then then hopefully scale right. But our ambitions are just as big as anyone else's, we just don't want to constrain ourselves to the fact that no one gets any money unless we reach that 10x. Yeah, that's another right, thing. Right. I think, I think, I mean, I've, I've heard you talk about this, or we've talked about it. And I think you've written about it in the book as well. But um, this concept of the misalignment of equity compensation too, for, you know, people who've come to work for these, you know, you go to work for a venture company, get some stock options, sounds great. But if they're, if the company ever gets to an exit, you know, these things, just become purely golden handcuffs. Yeah, you got to stick around, or they expire. Because companies have like ninety days to exercise them. That's right. Although there is a group of companies that's extending that out. Yeah, yeah. Miles has um, talked about that too. Yeah, it's just a difficult. I mean, there's a miss, and I think one reason, actually, I think one sort of strange thing that's going on in the crypto world that I'm not sure people are talking about a lot is I think uh, you know crypto developers can be paid in tokens and they can get it. Liquidity, you know, there's something yeah. about that that makes it a far more attractive place. You're a, a program where you, you've offered you're offered some crypto, and you're offered tokens in a network you're going to help build, and you believe in is going to have a lot of great value. Or you're offered options a private company which are never going to be liquid, in which you're going to have to rely upon somebody else to sell the company. You know, who knows where are you going to go? Yeah, I mean, so long as so long as people are willing to buy crypto, right? It's right. it's a liquid currency as opposed to stock options, which really, to your point, have have very little liquidity options. So I think, um, you know, I think one of the one of the challenges that a lot of venture back startups go through is this, the need to return capital in a particular time frame and at a particular scale, right? And I think that other types of investors can both have a longer view and can say, you know, a bunch of um, 2x, 3x, 4x hits makes me very happy as well, right? Which is which is wonderful, right? I, I, and I think that, the, you know, that to a certain extent, there are a lot of investors who would say, look, I'd much rather put my money back into my community and into, you know, small startups and have a bunch of, because so I, I think we live inside a bubble where we think that tech startups are common and startups are common and they are not. Uh, you know, this, the, the stats I was looking at, I think there was an article just yesterday in Quartz, all time, sorry, uh, 25 year low for number of people in the U.S. working, sorry, percentage of people in the U.S. working at a new company and number of new companies being founded. We are in an era of monopolies and giant companies. And yeah, yeah, we are. And I think this is a disaster. It's a disaster. <laughs> that is... I mean, you can see the impact on our right on our political landscape and on influence and on lobbying and and on how it you know sort of changes uh, the mechanics of all sorts of things of how society functions. We need more new companies, and I think that one of the one of the problems is that you know 
know, new companies in, in tech or out of tech uh, are forced to fit these certain parameters that not every company fits. Yeah. And there's a lot of regulatory backdrop too that forces a certain outcome. Yeah. Um, which is unfortunate. And and frankly, you know, we need to we need better advocates for startups in our in our rulemaking bodies. So we don't have like we have preposterous outcomes. Like for example, I think the whole application of uh, 280G to, to or at least 280G is this tax code section which says it was designed to cover off uh, you know executives of publicly traded companies who make off like bandits when the companies are sold. Right. Right. So they oh this is we perceive this as a societal bad. We want to tax these things with extra taxes. Fair enough. But shouldn't apply to a startup company. Shouldn't apply to a non-public startup company. And you'll have founders who get uh, screwed on 280G issues because their base salary for purposes of determining whether they're over three times their base salary uh, in connection with the payment, which is made in connection oh, with the change control. Salary, founders don't make good salaries. So right. their base amounts are really low. Right, right, right. And so then they finally get an outcome that's positive. They're going to sell their company. And then they, there's this tax problem. It's totally nonsensical. And so like the, the whole 409A thing, not sure why we need to price our stock options at fair market value. This just makes our lives more difficult. Yeah. It strips us of a tool to incentivize people. We used to be able to grant stock options at a penny a share. Yeah. And uh, you know, I get the idea like, hey, the CEO of Coke deferred billions of dollars in comp income. And that was perceived as a societal bad, but 409A shouldn't apply to startups. <laughs> apply to the executives of the public companies. Right. But, but, but why would you apply to us? It, it, it is it is pretty ridiculous. And well, then, like yeah. 83B elections, why do we force founders to file these things? Why not just flip the presumption so they're deemed filed if there's no taxes owed? I mean, there's all these little things that are just sort of incongruous and just because no one's thought about them. Right. Well, there's, a, I mean, one of, the, one of the biggest problems is you don't have, because, you know, new companies startups, you know, whether they technically fit what we would call a startup or not, we don't have a big bunch of lobbying right. groups that, right. you know, go to uh, Congress and say like, hey, we'll give you a million dollars for your next campaign run if you represent the little guy. Right. Now, little guys don't have that money, right? And they don't have that influence. They don't have that power. And right. so you get this very, very different sort of outcome. Right. I mean, plus there's people who are scrambling and scraping and building things and hustling. They're sold out on their time. Yeah, that's absolutely. <laughs> I mean, right. they're just sold out. These are people who do it. No, I, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, <laughs> very frankly, I think that, um, you know, anything that we can do that creates uh, more opportunity for people to start new businesses and incentivizes that uh, is a wonderful thing because I think that that means that, you know, you have more, you have more bargaining power when you're working at a big company to say, hey, I have a bunch of skills and talent, and I can take them. Not just elsewhere to another big company, but I can go start my own thing and I have opportunity there. Um, and I think that that's what makes an economy vibrant. Uh, and I worry, I worry about you know long-term outcome of this. So, yeah. in any case, yeah, the, yeah, I mean the you know the two things that that I hope I can offer, I mean through this are one those open sourced you know ter um, term sheet and and documents to be able to go raise money in a different kind of way, um, potentially an easier way. Uh, and definitely a more aligned outcome for a lot of founders and a lot of uh, non-institutional investors. And then secondarily, you know, I hope that Lost and Founder can help a lot of people try and build companies that don't make all the mistakes I made. <laughs> you know, uh, you're going to make mistakes, right? Like you build a company, oh man, you're going to mess it up. It's going to be, you're going to do a bunch of dumb stuff, but you don't have to do the same dumb stuff that, that I did. <laughs> no, it's a great, it's a great story. And I think, I'll, I mean, yep. 
Oh, sorry, go ahead, Mike. I was just say, where can people find the, the open source stuff? Do you have it on a GitHub repository or is it up on a website? Uh, just so, so folks can go find it if they want to take a look. Yeah, yeah. So it's on SparkToro's website. I actually, um, I believe all the docs are in a an open Google Docs or Google Drive folder. Uh, so you can download those from there and uh, they're available. You can find the link through SparkToro's blog or you can Google SparkToro docs um, and you'll you'll find those. Uh, and a few folks, it's been cool, you know, a few folks have already reached out and said like, hey, we're using this for our fundraising. Thank you so much. Um, hasn't been as many as I like, but probably half a dozen so far, which is, which is great. super cool. Yeah. 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 Tell us about SparkToro. Like uh, what's what's the new project about and, and, uh, oh, sure. and what, what, drew, what drew you to it? Yeah, actually it's sort of very centered on the startup world. So I think that the idea came about, um, well, through a number of folks, but one of the most salient is a company here in Seattle that I, I was helping out sort of informally over the last couple of years is uh, CrowdCow, which is uh, Joe Heitzberg and, and Ethan um, Lowry. And, you know, Joe and Ethan basically have this uh, this business where they go to small ranchers around the country and get like really high quality, ethically raised beef. Um, and then you can you can buy it on their website, right? And you can say like, hey, I want these two ribeye steaks from this you know awesome American Wagyu farm in Iowa or whatever it is. And uh, the the challenge that we saw, you know, I was I was helping them out, like, oh, I'll help you with SEO, right? I know SEO really well. That's what Moz did, search engine optimization, right? Ranking in Google. And we looked and we're like, oh man, there's not a lot of searches for buy steak online, buy beef online you know, buy a ribeye online, people think of the grocery store for that, right? They just, they're just not searching for that. And so to create demand for a business like that, what they need to do is go find their audience, right? People who care about ethical beef, people who care about uh, getting great quality and, and um, great tasting beef uh, delivered to them. And then they have to amplify their message, right? So it's a very different kind of practice. It's almost like a mix between you know, PR and content marketing and social media marketing and influencer marketing. And so they had this, they had this thing where they were like, okay, well, Rand, how do we uh, figure out who our audience pays attention to? And, and I had this, uh, that's hard. That's really hard. I don't know who, 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 like, I don't know who beef interested people pay attention to in the food world or around that. So just a ton of manual research goes into that process. And we, you know, their team did that. And I was like, no, this is wrong. This, this should be software. If we had a database of, you know, hundreds of millions of profiles and we could say, okay, people who are interested in steak or in, in great quality beef, or, you know, they're foodies and they're meat eaters, who do they pay attention to? What do they listen to? What, what podcasts do they listen to? What, what YouTube channels do they subscribe to? Um, what uh, blogs do they read? What media publications do they read? What magazines are they buying? Who are they following on Twitter and Instagram and all this stuff? That should be a product. There's, it is crazy that startups have to go through this, you know, multi-month, sometimes a year of trying to dig through their audience to understand who they pay attention to and then get go do their marketing to get in front of them. It should be 30 seconds. You should type in, here's my audience or here's, you know, someone my audience pays attention to. And we should be able to say, and here's everyone else they pay attention to. Here's all the other publications and people that influence your audience. And so that's what we're building, a search engine for finding who and what influences an audience. 
Mike, it sounds that could be super helpful in your in your business. Yeah, yeah, I could I could use something like that. Yeah, we, we I one of the, the the thing I've been focused on the last bunch of years is a, a meditation software. So like we have a oh, yeah. almost like like a competitor to Headspace or Calm, um, but sort of like what what you described, where like Headspace and Calm have both raised insane amounts of money and are trying to shoot for the stars. We're we're just a small team and we didn't we we're all bootstrapped. We 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 use the money we make from our customers to continue to develop the product. And, and we kind of look at it like, well, we don't have to be as big as those guys to have a, an amazing outcome for ourselves. We just have to have, you know, a steady group of, of customers who like our product and, and subscribe. Um, anyway, so that's, yeah. that's the backstory, but, but yeah, but finding people who are interested in that kind of product is interesting and a, and a hard problem. Um, we've tried to advertise some, it's just trying to get the advertisement to pay off as much as possible is a huge uh, you know, that's, there's some huge value there in figuring right. out so, where, I mean, where, to, where to put your message. Yeah. So Mike, I mean, one of the things that I would, you know, that I would love to be able to do is to take, you know, um, who did you mention was the big competitor? Oh, Headspace, right? Like Headspace yeah, or Calm. So take, those, those are two big ones. Yeah. So imagine if you could take Headspace or Calm, right? And plug their, you know, whatever it is, their YouTube channel or their um, website or their Twitter account into SparkToro search and then say, find me all the channels of influence that the people who pay attention to this also pay attention mm-hmm. to. And then we could say, oh, yeah, they, I don't know, read Sunset Magazine and listen to, you know, this NPR podcast. And they um, disproportionately watch, you know, subscribe to this YouTube channel. And they disproportionately follow these five accounts on Instagram. And then you go, oh, I know someone who knows a few of those Instagrammers. I know people who could help me, you know, be a guest on that podcast. I know people who could help get a mention of us on that YouTube channel, or I can contact their advertising team and, you know, get in front of them. Awesome. Right now I know where to go. Now I know where my audience is hanging out. And that is, that is hugely powerful. And it sucks that today, you know, 99% of marketing of marketers are just going to go to Facebook and Google and be like, okay, I'll just pony up whatever, whatever they're offering. Um, as right, opposed right. to here's how I can discover it. So yeah, that's the idea behind SparkToro. Great. That's idea. great. Yeah. yeah, it sounds really interesting. Yeah. Well, we've got uh, we got a lot of work ahead of us, but I, I hope that yeah, about a year from now we'll have a product uh, out on the market. Yeah, that's great. That's really fun. Hey, I think people in the audience would love to know. I mean, how do you, what's your? I mean, you produce a lot of amazing content. I mean, stuff of writing, Thanks, yeah. of yeah. whiteboard Fridays. And you do a lot of really fun and creative things. And I think a lot of people would say, probably scratch their heads and say to themselves, gosh, how does he do it? <laughs> What's his methodology? What, like, yeah. Do you wake up at, like, do you write from, well, I know you're not a morning person. So you don't write in the mornings. No, no, I, I actually do almost do? all my work at, uh, you know, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Okay. On, the, on the content creation front. Okay. Yeah, but so the big, the big thing for me, I think the thing that has helped me most in content creation is audience empathy. Right. So just like I spend lots of time with people who are in my audience. You know, I, I go to a lot of events. Right. I um, I have a lot of phone calls. I have a ton of email and, you know, in, interactions over Twitter and LinkedIn. LinkedIn's actually been huge for me lately. Yeah. And um, and through those interactions, I see the same questions or the same discussion topics over and over. And I go that that right there is hot right now. And I don't see anything great on that. I'm going to write something or film something or talk about something or produce an image or a visual right. that is around this particular topic. And I think that for a marketer, you know, for someone who's creating things for other people, there's nothing more powerful than being able to put yourself in the shoes of, you know, dozens or hundreds of your audience members and saying, what do I need? What's missing? 
What do I wish I had? And then creating that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sort of the same methodology I've employed. I'm, the, I'm not a good and consistent blogger like you are, but the idea is, hey, I get this question no, that, all the time. Yeah, you're... Just write the answer, and then when people call us, we can just give them the answer, and then we don't have to talk to them, and they can save lawyer fees. Well, and they can, they can Google it, right? Yeah, I mean, that, Google, the, yeah, the awesome thing, yeah. yeah, it's an awesome power to be able to say, hey, lots of people have this question. I know yeah. they're asking. Let me publish something, and then when people do need that answer, they don't need to pay. They can get the answer right there. And then if they need more help, they can contact us, right? right? And that's that's been huge for millions of businesses. I mean, that's the whole power of SEO and content marketing. Yeah. So so you were like the 10 to 2 a.m. person, like four days a week. That's the methodology or is it five days a week? How many days a week? It, well, it was historically <laughs> five days a week. Now, I, I honestly, um, because of, you know, sort of more obligations that I have in, in other areas, yeah. uh, I'm more like a one day a week okay. person. Okay. So okay. and. And I can get similar results, okay. you know, not quite the same, but similar results from that just because, you know, I have the audience now, sure, right? So sure. one, one of the great things about content marketing is that you build a flywheel. And I talk about this a little bit in the book, right? But the idea is that the flywheel is incredibly hard to get started, right? It takes an insane amount of energy to get that going. Those, those first two years right. blogging at Moz, getting no visits, you know, I was lucky to break a hundred visitors to the blog in a day. Right. Well, um, then you had that, your most one of your most productive freakout sessions ever, remember? That's <laughs> exactly that. right. I love that part of the book. Exactly. So this does happen though, and I've experienced this myself. So if you're diligent in writing stuff, sometimes, not all the time, like most of the time when I'm writing, like the words just come out really slowly and it's really painful and arduous. But then some moments, you just hit a moment, you're like, yeah, bang, you produce like 40 pages of beauty yeah. in a couple hours. And you're like, I don't know where that came from. I tend to think it came from the fact that you grind it out in those moments you can't produce anything, you keep going. And then you have like, sprints like breakthrough moments yeah and this was a breakthrough moment for you when you published that guide right and yeah yeah like, the beginner's guide to seo yeah. and then the search ranking factors and whiteboard friday right and a right. number of other like sort of relatively big successes that help move the needle tremendously for moz and spark toro has been i will say easier right like the, the um you know the blog post about open sourcing the docs that went hot on hacker news got picked up by a ton of outlets you know got us ten thousand visits in 30 hours right and so that's awesome um you know, we, we had, uh, we launched this sort of side project, little tool called SparkToro Trending, which just shows people what's going, what, what marketers are tweeting about okay. um, and is sort of news for web marketers. And that has been getting us regularly 500 to 1,000 visits a day with no work, right? It, we just produced it. It went, it went well. You know, I tweet about it every now and then. A lot of other people share stuff. They find stuff on it and then they share that and they say, I found this on Trending. Uh, and now it's become sort of a home for a bunch yeah. of web marketers. So, I used to love inbound.org, but you guys... Uh, that's right. Yeah. So inbound.org was something I co-founded with Darmesh Shah from HubSpot. Yeah. They shut that... Uh, HubSpot took it over a few years ago yeah. and they ended up shutting it down, which I think was the right decision for their business. But SparkToro Trending was really like, hey, could we reproduce something like this right. that is that provides the same value? And yeah, it's been been awesome so far. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, hey, Mike, what, any further thoughts or questions for Randy? Randy, we could sit and talk to you all day. Oh, awesome. <laughs> but we, we respect <laughs> yeah. your time because like, uh, anyway, so Mike, any, any parting thoughts for Rand or the audience? No, this is, this is great. Tell us, uh, like, so, um, where sh should we watch? We keep an eye on SparkToro yeah. for the eventual product launch and then, uh, and then tell, uh, tell people where they can find the book. Absolutely. So you can, you can find the book on SparkToro. You can also, uh, find it all the places that books are sold, Barnes and Noble, Indie Books, Powell's, Amazon, et cetera. Um, and uh, there's also, there is an audio version. I know a bunch of people are 
big into audiobooks. Yeah. Um, Who does I, the reading on it? I, I did the oh, reading. Oh, nice. My I first was, ever. I'm, I'm not a like, professional voice oh, actor. that's great. But... I was actually going to order the Audible last night, but then I, whatever, fell asleep or something. <laughs> I want to, I think that's a great, I mean, people do love audio. People yeah, yeah. Really, and it's been Yeah, it's I been love fun. audiobooks. It, it's kind of cool. You know, there's, a, I, I got to add in a few extra things okay. in the audio version. Did it take you, I, okay, so the book is, I mean, how long did it take you to read this thing? In, in uh, it was, that. it's three and a half days in the studio. Um, and it's pretty intense. Yeah. Your yeah. voice is tired at the end of that, man. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause I imagine, yeah, I imagine you're, it just requires a lot of, there's probably a lot of discipline in reading books that you don't appreciate when you don't read books for a living. <laughs> I do highly recommend it though. Um, I think, I think if you write something, reading it aloud to yourself or to someone else is kind of powerful. You just get better. Your writing gets better. Right. Right. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. If you, if you should be able to read it out loud, it should be enjoyable for you to read it out loud. And it's not that you need to rewrite it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if you, you know, if you can get some passion in there, yeah. right, if there's moments where you like tear up or you feel anger or, you, yeah. you know, you feel frustration from the problem that you're presenting, that is powerful. Yeah, it's so much fun. Well, it's been awesome to have you here. Oh, on thanks, the show. guys. Thank you so, so much for coming. Yeah, um, my pleasure. And yeah. thank you for, for, of course, all the help, Joe, in, uh, in building SparkToro. I can't wait to... Uh, see where this thing goes next. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to, to be, be a part of the fun journey. So thank you. Awesome. All right. Yeah. Cheers, guys. Take care. Thanks, yeah. Thanks for being here. And thanks everyone else for listening. We'll see you all next week.